You're listening to the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. If you'd like to learn more or check out our resources, please visit nifw.org. going to run through some slides. I'm happy to share the slide deck with you, so I will make sure that you have my email, and it is my name, Phyllis, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S dot Hildreth, H-I-L, D as in David, R-E-T-H, at Lipscomb.edu. If you would email me, I would be happy to send a copy to you and any other information that may come up in our conversation. Okay, this is gonna be a problem. So we're gonna go through some slides. We're going to set up what does apology look like? What does it mean to actually do this work in the workplace? Gonna hit on does every kind of rift or injury require an apology? Think the answer's no. Answer's maybe, answer's depend. And then we're going to see what do the processes and protocols that we briefly introduced you to look like perhaps in your workplace or other situations that you're wondering about? So I hope to be brief and I hope that the bulk of this conversation really will be a group dialogue around some what does this look like and maybe we can work through some instances. So these thoughts, apology in the workplace. We're going to consider as I indicated the purposes and processes of apology, very much a process. The place of apology in the workplace, whether, when, or how to engage the policy process in the workplace, how effective a apology practice might, might lead to forgiveness, and what's that tension? And is apology enough? Is there something else? Is apology part of a broader continuum that we may need to consider? So, how apology works. The work of Aaron Lazar, A-A-R-O-N, Lazar, is pretty seminal in this field. He um, was head of pediatric psychiatry in 
I think Boston General, but a major institution in Massachusetts. So he's a part of that whole world. And his first work was not an apology. I believe it was in cancer, but he moved into it in his latter years, and he wrote a seminal piece on apology in 2005. If you Google him and Google YouTube, he has a wonderful lecture that comes in in about an hour that is really worth watching if you would like a deeper dive on some of the points that we will hit. This slide is taken from his work in 2005, and he really gives some of the basics, okay? And they are these. An apology, when it works, first meets the needs of the offended party, and those needs are first and foremost to understand what happened, okay? So there's two parts of this. The apology is for the offended party. It is not for me to feel better about having stepped in it so I can say, oops, my bad, and move on, okay? No, this is all about the offended offended against. And I am particular with terminology, I don't want to say victim, because many times a person who's offended a pence is still very powerful. And part of the offense is perhaps you have tampered with my dignity and messed with my power, but I do not wish to be diminished, not even in nomenclature in this transaction. So I'm very careful with that. The second is restoring self-respect and dignity. Think about the times that you've been offended against, right? Particularly in the workplace. How many times has this been the nut of it? You didn't respect my idea. You attributed it to somebody else. You were not a good steward of my time. You brought stuff up late. See, I'm seeing heads not right? And that comes to what? What I really want back is you can't give me my time back, but I would like recognition that I should probably be entertained in a different way, okay? Third, affirms shared values of both parties. What does this mean? This is probably easier to understand in a workplace than when we teach this generically and we're looking out in the broader social sphere. In the workplace, we are all apart. We're in the same boat, right? We're part of the same organization. We have committed to come together to execute, execute a joint mission. Part of what is important in restoring a broken relationship in the workplace to say, you know what? We're still all about those widgets, right? I mean, we came here to do widgets better than anybody else. And this thing, if we don't get our hands on it, is going to affect our ability to widgetize the world together. So we're still together about widgets, right? You see what I'm getting? If we can remember why we came together in the first place and why we have relationship. So part of that is, wait a minute, we still got this thing we share. Then next, validates the offended party's lack of fault. It, when you did that thing to me, it is not my fault. Probably the most important thing that we need to acknowledge and say out loud to the offended against. And I, unfortunately, you see in the news with some of the examples that Missy has referenced that that victim blaming and victim shaming can be a part of re-traumatizing or furthering the trauma and harm. There has to be an upfront. It was not you. It was not about the way you dressed. This was not about the way you prepared the presentation. This has nothing to do with you, what you just said. This is on me. This is on us. Okay. Next. 
assures future safety in the relationship. May not have figured out exactly what went on to hurt you, but you know what? I promise that when we work together, this isn't going to happen again. We're going to find some way to fix this so that that thing does not reoccur. That's the future safety. And do you begin to see now where the problem with that sort of checklist apology could be? It's like, oops, my bad. No processing, and we're going to do it again, and we're constant because as long as I come back and say, oops, my bad, I'm sorry, then I can keep going, right? This bullet says, uh-uh. This has to be a one and done. And what does it take to vector towards a new relationship in which we are safe together? Okay, this bullet, my students always roll around on the floor and scream about this one, but look, let's be honest. The offender has to be seen to suffer, correct? Oh, come on and say amen. You ain't that high and holy. So what do we mean? It doesn't necessarily mean an eye for eye, but there's got to be a little bit of squirming. So the last time I did a version of this presentation, it was for NCRC, Nashville Conflict Resolution Center, and their one-hour lunch and learn. And I was flying back in from the West Coast. It was, you know, going to be doing it the next day. And I'm coming back from Oregon. I'm on a layover in Las Vegas at 7 in the morning, and I happen to check. You know, you just get your bars back, and I check, and so I check the email. And there is a message from a judge who is sitting on the bench here saying, oh, I see you're speaking tomorrow at the exact same time that we were supposed to go out and have lunch. How nice. Okay, so where am I? OMG, I'm going to be held in contempt. What must I do? And so I sat in that 10 minutes I have before they're going to call my boarding section on Southwest trying to get an email of apology off. And I probably had to do about four different drafts because let me tell you something. Human nature, the first thing is, I'm sorry, I'm not a bad person. See, what had happened was, and I realized that the first draft was about me. Scrap, sin. I am sorry, this is what happened. I'm not allowed to touch my calendar. And when I told you we would have lunch, I kind of like did that without checking in with the people who handled me. So I didn't put it on my calendar and I just didn't see it. I am so sorry. What can I do to make it up to you? I will never do a one-off promise to have lunch with you again, and it was fine. What I did, what ended up happening in terms of seeing suffering, I hit send. I have no idea how that was received. So there's some discomfort, but wait, there's more. So the next day at the event, the judge's chief of staff is present in the room. And so when I get to this bullet, I use this example and I tell the story on myself. And I name names and everybody knows who's there. And so a room of 40 people kind of got to see me squirm about screwing up, right? Okay, this sort of light and trite, but it's real. Does that make sense? The notion of somebody who's supposed to be a professional who comes in and violates one of our social norms and then confesses it out loud was actually that squirming. And that was communicated back to the judge and all was well. So it can be that light or it can go much deeper. Think about that because it's psychologically important. Repairing the harm caused by the offense. 
So in an apology, it's not just confessing it and owning it. What are we going to do about this? What do you need? And one of my challenges to this group is to say, and what does that look like in your organization? Because ultimately, it's about we've got to repair all the relationships that make sure that we can come together and keep making those awesome widgets, right? So part of that repair might be figuring out, do we even know the extent of the harm, right? I thought I just messed over this table when I did something, but I did not realize that it rolled to this table and then rolled to the next table. So if I spend all my time turning my back to you guys and just saying, you know, y'all six, I'm so sorry about what I did and I really hope you forgive me and we're cool now, right? Awesome, done, bye. How do you all feel? And you're part of the widget team have my back to you, did not even acknowledge, right? Do you want to talk about the harm that I caused you as well? That is, that's part of our particular challenge in an organizational environment is it may not always be the thing that we see on top of the iceberg. We may have to go below the line and do some more investigation so that we can be clear about what the harm was. It wasn't that I served still water when you ask for sparkling water, but it is that it caused all sorts of other unintended consequences going on. And once I know the extent of the harm, then we can figure out a true protocol for repair. And then finally, and I think that this may be one of the most important for our organizations, is it opens a meaningful dialogue. What, from administration all the way down, from the person who did the harm to the entities that are affected by it. What does it mean to have an open and continuing learning dialogue so that not only does this not happen in the future, but we can build better practices and processes to avoid and enhance our relationships going forward. Okay. So I've talked about harm a lot. Let me share with you one definition of harm that comes from Murphy and Robinault. Jennifer Robinault is um, seen as one of the leaders in this field, particularly talking about apology and medical malpractice and harm. And so I like her definition. It is this. Harm is defined as a disruption or interference in a person's well-being, including damage to that person's body, psychological state, capacities to function, life plans or resources over which we take this person to have entitlement. Such disruption or interference is objectively determined. So that's a mouthful, and if you were in my graduate course, I would make you parse each and every clause, and you know, we write papers about it. But you can begin to see there's a lot to work with, right? I'm going to summarize on the next slide, but before I do that, that last bit, the disruption or interference is objectively determined, and your best source of evidence for what that harm is is the person who was harmed. Failing to give deference and autonomy, autonomy to the person who was harmed can be another whole harm in itself. You won't even hear my story. So asking, listening, and validating 
is how we're going to get this data before we figure out the next step. So thinking specifically in the harm in the workplace, I would urge you to think about four categories. You can boil that down to four. First, the cognitive. When we talk about conflict management, when we teach in our introductory course, we talk about sort of the three drivers of conflict, cognitive, emotional, or affective, and behavioral. So cognitive is what I know or what I think, what I perceive. Emotional, affective, how I feel, right, all up in my emotions. And then the third are our behaviors. So what we're kind of doing with this trinity is we're saying apology is a behavioral exercise. And it is looking at cognitive and affective injury. And also may include physical and materials. So to break that down, and now's when you can start doing your table work about, okay, what does this look like in the workplace? Cognitive can be what? Lost of trust in the working relationships. Have you ever seen that thing where you're on a team and somebody messes up? How do you feel about going back and working on that team in the future? How is that team working? You're showing up and you already think, Hildreth is a mess. She's not going to pull her weight, right? So you already have some problems there. Um, confidence in the abilities of the others. These are sort of thinking heuristics that we would talk about and teach. Do we now believe that you're always going to do the thing that you did because you did it last time, and so there's never an opportunity for you to come out of that because it's unconfessed? Affected. Hurt feelings, shame. But think about this, loss of self-confidence. What happens to your workplace efficacy when a person is not able to do anymore because they think, wow, they keep ignoring me. I must not be very good at what I do. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to come in, right? That's a harm as well, demoralization. Physical. Physical harm can be anything from stress-related illness or disability in your physical space to actually having had your physical space violated or injured. So that's a whole range of physical harms and then material. Anything from wage oppression, I'm not being paid the same as a person in the other cube, lost economic opportunity, I'm not getting the promotion because of those perceptions you have about me from the cognitive injury, um, and then think about to the workplace as a whole. What happens when team productivity goes down? We can't get the widgets out because we're spending all this time at the water cooler talking about what's going on and not being fixed. Okay. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide. This comes from also Murphy and Robinault, but they're beginning to look at the restorative justice matrix. You may have heard of that term, restorative justice. This begins to figure in to what we're talking about now. There is this difference of when harm happens if we focus everything on the offender versus whether or not we take the lens to look from the offended against, right? So this gives you a sense of if we're only doing offender focus, if we're out to lay blame and censure this person, then you have offender focus is moral censure or condemnation of the perpetrator, holding the perpetrator accountable, and deterrence or non-occurrence. So if something happens in the workplace that causes a rift, we can go after the offender and that's fine. Or is it? 
I would submit that it doesn't finish the rest of the restorative and reconciliation, reconciliatory work that needs to be done to bring us back to community. So instead, if we can maintain a victim focus, we're going to acknowledge the impermissibility of how the victim was treated or the offended against, recognize and reaffirm the moral status of the offended against as a person who is a, I love this term, a rights bearer. I walk into this workplace with a set of rights that I should have a reasonable expectation are not going to be violated. That should be part of the contract in our relationship. Um, and that there's going to be a repair of harm. Going after the offender doesn't always mean that we're going to turn our attention to the work of repairing harm. And that's the difference when we click over to a restorative mindset. So, question. Is I'm sorry an apology? What do you think? Oops, I'm sorry, my bad. Well, it depends. Lazar would say that the I am sorry also has a function. It can be an expression of regret. And the re expression of regret can be, I am sorry that you experienced this negative consequence. I am sorry that something's happened here that's messed up our relationship. We were going good, and then I don't know, right? What's not in the literature and something that we've started to come to in preparing for this presentation is particularly in the workplace, the I'm sorry for something bad happened even though I don't know what it is might be a necessary predicate if you say it as such. I don't know exactly what the problem is. And we need to engage in that research we talked about to find the scope and who else is harmed. And I promise we're going to follow up with whatever apology is appropriate, but I can't give you the full apology right now because I don't know what to apologize for. All right? If you go with that I'm sorry comma, it can be very effective if it's going to lead to these I'm sorry that is truly apologetic because the I'm sorry that's apologetic finishes the sentences. It acknowledges the cause for wounding, accepts responsibility, and seeks to repair the wound and restore the relationship. So if you're gonna finish all of those other work tasks, then you're good to go. So what does a full apology look like? This kind of the short version, Lazar says basically you have these four elements in some form or fashion. The first is confession of fault and responsibility for a specific identified harm. I rewatched Lazar's video yesterday, and he tells a story of he was tussling with his grandson, and he thought he was going to escalate the wrestling match, and he found some whipped cream, you know, the whipped cream in the, in the can. And so he got it and sprayed it on the kid, and the kid started screaming. He's like, I'm sorry, I sprayed, sprayed whipped cream on you. And the kid's like, no, Grandpa. I bumped my head on the table, and you didn't kiss it and make it better. So what was the harm? The harm was you failed in your grandpa duties to kiss the boo-boo and make it better. The whipped cream was awesome. But if we, we hit a miss, you know, we're going to be out of there. So specifically identifying the harm is important because you got to apologize for the right thing. Explanation of how and why the harmful behavior occurred. And if you go all the way into the literature of truth and reconciliation, Desmond Tutu, that whole notion of people wanted to know how was their beloved taken and how did they actually die in interrogation and who was on That wanting to know what happened seems to be an important part of the healing of folks. So explaining 
is important. Affected display of remorse, shame, guilt, or contrition. I already gave you an example of that, but you can see where that's going in this context. And then restorative remedial action. So, let me ask this. Does every workplace harm require an apology? What do you think? You think so? Every, everyone. Okay. So, um, I'm sorry, but, you know, widget sales are not great. I'm going to have to lay you off. Do I need to apologize for laying you off? You're a much kinder soul than I. Do, bottom line people, do I need to apologize for laying them off? Sales are down. We don't have the money. The budget's not there. No. Why? Because that is part of the sort of appropriate performance of duties within the mission and mandate of the organization. Now, if I knew that sales were down last quarter and I knew that we were going to do this, and I probably got told by my dean two months ago that we were going to have to pull the trigger, and I wait till two days before your last day to announce it in a staff meeting to everybody, you think I need to apologize? Yes, that's apologizing for the manner in which I did the work that does not need apology because harm is caused. And even if I did it two months ago and I did everything right, I can still do that expression of benevolence and concern. Man, I know you just moved here with your kids and you know your son's gonna be playing the game. And I, you know, I'm so sorry. What else can we do to make that? You know, can I make some referrals? Can we do some other things? Does that make sense? So that qualified if, if you, if the act that actually causes the pain, the harm, is one that is conducted in performance of duties with mission mandate of the organization, or it's done within the boundaries of equitable enforcement of just policy and practice, this is the way we always do it. You didn't get the promotion. You didn't get the promotion because we followed the protocol. Now, if I jump over your head and I give it over there, then whoa, right? I probably did a harm because it didn't meet that. Phyllis Dicta at the end, just my own personal cutoff on this. I'm going to suggest that even if those first two bullets are true, it probably does not absolve us from looking at creating an apology ecosystem in the organization if the harm happened. Maybe it was well-intentioned, but it was still there was ignorance of known or knowable conditions leading to patterns of practice resulting in systemic harm within the workplace community. So you got your mission, you got your mandate, you got your rules and regulations, and do you know what? They always seem to leave the people who wear the purple polos to work on the short end of the stick. How does that happen? I don't have any problem with people wearing purple polos, but if everything we do by the book always leads to this table not getting served in time, maybe we need to examine everything else up. And if this, all six of these ladies come and tell us, look, I'm tired of this. You got a lot of purple over there too. I'll, I'll take the magenta, right? Then maybe that sort of, I'm sorry we haven't been attentive to changes, conditions, and climates in the workplace and that some of us are falling behind 
for things that the rest of us are doing on autopilot. Maybe we can do better about that. Does that make sense? That's just me. Okay, so quickly, I'm going to talk about forgiveness. What about forgiveness? Well, if apology isn't a behavior that we can structure that with the bullets that I gave you, I'm going to suggest that um, quite as is kept, you have no control over forgiveness. None. Because that is an cognitive and affective event that happens within an individual. Okay? You may not even have control over whether you're able to forgive somebody. Has anybody ever said, I should forgive? I'm going to forgive. Mm-hmm, I forgive you. I'll forgive you. Mm-mm. Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, it, the burden's lifted. What was that about? And the spiritual tip, I think that's an act of grace. But in the workplace, I'm going to say, let us be aware of the dynamics of forgiveness, but understand that that's something we don't control. So... Forgiveness, one definition is it's the release of negative and the potential enhancement of positive feelings, emotions, and behaviors towards an offender, right? So this is something that the offended against has control over, not you in the workplace. Another definition from um, Bishop Desmond Tutu, forgiveness means the ability to let go of the right to revenge. I have a right to jack you up. Right to revenge and to slip the chains of rage that may bind you to the person who harmed you. Isn't that awesome? Man, you talk about squad goals. That's amazing. What we do tend to find, oh, and I'm sorry, this is really, really tiny, but research shows that when forgiveness is associated with less anxiety, depression, better physical health, fewer physical symptoms, and all that good stuff. These are my medical writers who are writing this, right? So forgiveness is a really good thing if you can get it. My last bit then is, I mentioned restorative justice. Howard Zare is seen to be the dean of the restorative justice movement, and his definition is this. Restorative justice requires at a minimum that we address victims' harms and needs, hold offenders accountable to put, those, to put right those harms, and involve victims, offenders, and community in the process. Oh, everybody's got to be involved in this. So that last clause looks like workplace stuff, right? Does this mean that administration gets to hole up with counsel to get that ironclad, legally binding apology? And then they're going to come up and say, this is how we're going to fix it. We're going to do this, this, and this. We're done. We're out, right? Zara's saying that in a restorative environment, you got to ask everybody, what do you think of these ideas? If this, there is this piece of co, even though it's not the victims, the offended against fault that things happen, part of what we want to do is bring them into the process of what does remediation look like? What does res restoration look like? So, last slide is the result of this prayer and anguish and not wanting to go to Nineveh, and I really didn't want to give this talk. Missy and I, Missy invited me to give this talk two months ago, well before anything happened on my workplace. And the fact that I have to walk in here and talk about this today is, mm, I think this is a silver lining for me, that it, it did clarify the thought that, you know what, all of this comes together. You asked me to talk about apology in the workplace, and I want to leave you with a gift of the concept of a restorative workplace. That a restorative workplace is a place where relationships 
are normed on dignity and trust. All right, so that's baseline. So we're always trying to, we start there, and we're always trying to get back there. And if that is true, it is a place where breaches are promptly acknowledged, investigated to discover the nature of the harm, the scope of the harm, and how and why the harm occurred. And then those suffering harm are heard about what happened to them. And then the apology is offered, see previous slide with all the elements, and the remedial dialogue and action ensue. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna end and it's gonna be over, but at least we start on that joint effort together. That's all I got. That, that seems to be what this moment is giving to us. It, you know, my last note that I would leave on is, if you're reading the newspapers or checking your favorite social media feed, you're seeing all kinds of other CARMs that are generating it runs at all kinds of apologies with larger things. And one of the things that Dean Joyner is always insistent on in his systems lecture is in complex adaptive systems, which is what our workplaces are, we have to be very clear that our sphere of concern matches our sphere of influence. So if we're worried about all this out here and you only got control over this, you're going to freak out and burn up trying to handle the stuff you can't get your arms around. I'm going to submit that what's going on out there is part of that's beyond. We're concerned about it, but we can't control it. But in here, we can be thinking about how we work together and support each other to build restorative workplaces. We have some agency and control over that. And I would submit that if we get this right, then the bigger thing will start to fall into line. So that's it. Thank you.